Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and I am joined uh, again via Zoom today by uh, Peter Cat with a creative Zoom background as always. Good to have you here, Peter. Thank you. Great to be with you, Dom. Thanks. I wish we could share your cartoon backdrops that you have on the Zoom podcast uh, with our, our listeners. We'll have to um, get some screenshots up perhaps. Find a way to do it. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, Sue yeah. Grimmett is joining us from the inside of the, of your church in Indrapilly today, Sue. Yes, where the internet happens to be better than the rectory tonight. <laughs> so I'm here, yeah. Lovely to be here. Wonderful. And uh, we, we are just so excited, beyond excited, by the guest we have joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Karen Armstrong is one of the most prominent writers and speakers in the faith space in the world today, having written books such as A History of God, A Short History of Myth, and The Case for God, among many others. Uh, she's also the woman behind the Charter for Compassion, a document urging the peoples and religions of the world to embrace the core value of compassion in the way we live with one another. Uh, her newest book, Sacred Nature, How We Can Recover Our Bond with the Natural World has just been released, um, I, I believe at the time this will be published. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for, for joining us on the On The Way podcast. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, let's start, uh, I guess, by discussing where the genesis of this particular book has, has come from. You have spent your life writing somewhat extensively, I suppose, on the, the world's great um, faith traditions. What was it that led you into, into this particular scope? Well, obviously, we're environmentally in great trouble at the moment. And uh, this this has been become much more evident in the last couple of years or so. And it struck me because with, that with my study of the world religions, uh, which has been going on for years, uh, that they had something important to teach us, uh, that we in the West, um, in, starting in, in right in Britain, I think, uh, uh, in, in, in the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, we'd started to develop an entirely different way of looking at the natural world. And when you compare this with the way the world religions all uh, have, have treated nature as something absolutely sacred, uh, this, this seemed to be something that we should, we should consider and try and recover what we once had. Thomas Aquinas, uh, was quite clear. He, he agreed with, uh, with with what the other religions said when asking where is God. God, he said, is everywhere, and mm. wherever God is, God is there wholly. Mm. Um, and uh, but in the uh, starting in about this this fifteenth century, we began to develop, in, in especially in Britain, people uh, in a very scientific way of looking at nature whereas uh, the the world religions see don't have it the idea of a god stuck in the highest heaven but a god who is as thomas aquinas said everywhere mm. um, and all they all developed a remarkably similar uh, pattern which seems to be archetypal uh, both in india and china civilizations very, very far away from one another, incommunicable at that time, developed a remarkably similar idea that uh, the Chinese called it qi, uh, a force that is both physical and spiritual, natural and supernatural, utterly unknowable, but it flows through all things. Um, in, in India, they call this rita, um, and in, in exactly the same way that, that this this was this was not 
a god up there. The gods are created. They're part of the whole create, creative process. Uh, in India, they said the gods emerge and they are artists and they all uh, have a little job to do to create the cosmos. But then instead of retiring to heaven and looking down on us uh, from, from above in a lofty position, in, in, uh, they all entered uh, the things they had created, the flowers, the trees, the mountains, the rivers, so that nature was imbued with sacrality. Uh, and this is very different from the kind of uh, idea that we de were developing in the West, uh, where Bacon in the 17th century says uh, that uh, our God commanded us in the book of Genesis to take the world and subdue it. Mm. Uh, Adam failed, he said, because Adam sinned and he didn't do the job. But now it's up to us to take the world, subdue it, and make it uh, uh, make it what it what it has become mm. um, something that's rich. Uh, that we we've done extraordinary things with nature, but we've also damaged the environment considerably, and now we're we're in we're in trouble. Um, but very interestingly. Uh, and it's interesting to me because I began uh, my my life as a young as a, as an adult studying English literature, and one of my favourite poets was the poet Wordsworth. And Wordsworth, as a young boy, had been filled with a sort of a absolute joy in nature. He saw it everywhere; it filled him with absolute passion. But that went, as he said in his famous poem. It faded with the light of day and, and, and when he entered adulthood. But later, he says in his great poem, Tintin Abbey, he said, I have learned to look at nature differently. Uh, he had trained his mind to look at nature in a different way. And that's what we've got to do. And if Wordsworth can do it, we all can. Yeah. Um, but, what it, but what is interesting is how he described how he saw nature now. He said, in Tintin Abbey, he said, I have learned to look at, on nature, not as when I was a young boy and it just filled him with ecstasy, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity, nor harsh, nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought and rolls through all things. Now, this is exactly what the Chinese meant when they talked about qi, what uh, the Indians said with talked about when they talked about Rita or Brahma. Uh, it seems and Wordsworth came to this. I don't think he knew anything about Chinese uh, philosophy, but he came to it naturally. It's something that's natural to us. Um, it's not, we're mm -hmm. not asking people to do something peculiar. This is how human beings naturally uh, thought about nature. And we have now, I think, to find ways of, uh, before it's too late, of, uh, thinking differently, seeing nature differently, as Wordsworth did. Notice he says he calls it, he says it something. He won't call it God because God has come to mean something very different, a God right up there in the heavens. Mm. Uh, but 
uh, he, he, he he calls it something. He, he doesn't know what to call mm. it, mm. but, but it, it, it's, and I think, uh, as I say, if Wordsworth can do it, we can, and not only we can, we must yeah. try. Mm. <clears throat> that nature, mm. Not just act differently. And so much of the talk environmentally is rather scientific. We hear about elements and, you know, all these, these difficult things, uh, but it doesn't move us emotionally. Yes. Mm. It us, but it doesn't move us emotionally. Whereas uh, I tried to sort of find ways in which bit by bit, day by day, uh, we can introduce that kind of Wordsworthian uh, thinking, that Chinese thinking, that Indian way of thought into our own um, into our own lives. Mm. And, and you really beautifully explore, uh, I guess, a range of different um, insights from various traditions that can help us do this. And uh, we will look at a few of these throughout the conversation ahead. That they're, they're such helpful ideas, I think, in the moment we find ourselves in. Uh, I thought to, to sort of go right back from that, though, you tell a story right at the beginning of um, going to see the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum. And, uh, and I suppose the what you were were intending to do there, what that experience was for you compared to how you saw others experience it and how you see others experience things like that today, this desire to, instead of having an experience of something, to capture it on a photograph and move along. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about, about that story and, and maybe the, the different ways we can um, relate to, to beauty. Well, um, I was a young nun at that time. I was uh, studying for university entrance. Uh, and my uh, teacher had told me to go and look at the museums that were then housed, the, the, the manuscripts that were then housed in the British Museum. The British Library was then located in the British Museum. Um, and since then, the museum has come to mean a great deal to me. I've been a trustee there, and I'm still very much involved with it. Um, but as a young nun, I remember standing in front of this, this case, looking at the po poems it, written in the handwriting of Wordsworth, uh, where I've just mentioned, uh, Keats, uh, Shelley. Uh, this, and it was extraordinary to me because I had not seen, for four years, um, I had not seen any films, had seen no television. And we were entirely cut off from the world. They did tell us about the Cuba Missile Crisis in 1962, but then they forgot to tell us that the, uh, the the problem had so been solved, and we spent three days. With, uh, we, we spent three weeks actually in terror because we were never allowed to ask for news of the world, um, <laughs> waiting for Armageddon. Um, so we were that cut off. But looking at that uh, and seeing that this was the moment when the, the poems that were now a part of myself had come into the world, as it were. I've, it was a, a kind of communion. Um, an extraordinary communion. I just wanted to sit and look at it, not and just be in its presence. Mm. But you see, now when I go to the British Museum, what I see is endlessly people taking photographs. Mm. They're not wanting to be in the presence of the Rosetta Stone, for example. They want to take a number of photographs and they, they've got it, as it were. And it's the same when we go to, you go to, you see people on the beach walking up and down, chattering into their mobile phones and um, or, or just taking endless photographs of a, of a wonderful place of nature. It's, it, so we're seeing it, we're preferring, preferring a virtual uh, vision of nature 
uh, that we fit into a tiny little thing in our phone, which we own in some way, but not something that moves us. And so one of the things I suggest in the book is that we practice what the Chinese called quiet sitting. And this isn't anything like yoga. Um, you can sit in whatever position you like. Uh, you can just sit there, and turn off your phones, uh, and just watch the sounds and listen to the sounds of nature. Watch what's happening. I've got over there, you won't be able to see it, um, just opposite my desk, I've got a tree. There's a tree, a huge tree that is the mounts above the, above the houses opposite. And I love watching that tree uh, because it, the colors change every day. And the seasons, particularly in the winter, when you see the, 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 the all the creatures among the bare branches making their homes there. And you realize that that tree has an existence of its own. A, a, a form of life uh, that is sacred because it's extraordinary that it ha should happen year after year after year. We should make ourselves marvel at this instead of simply taking it for granted. Um, and just take some moments every day for quiet sitting, 10 minutes a day, and then you can increase it a little bit as you go on. But just a re reconvening our relationship with nature, restoring it, um, and, and and learning to revere it and wonder at it. Mm. It's it's interesting, uh, when I was reading your, your experience of that, I was reminded of a, a moment that happened to me a couple of years ago now in a small town in the South Island of New Zealand in Wanaka. And Wanaka has famously this tree that creatively has been called that Wanaka tree. And it's, uh, I think it's called the most uh, the most photographed tree in the Southern Hemisphere, um, somebody once said about it. And anytime you, you're in Wanaka and you see this tree, it sort of sits in the middle of the lake almost, um, there will always be at least 10, 15 people around it with cameras taking their photo of the Wanaka tree. And, and I joined this, this group of people a bunch of years ago taking a photo on my phone. And this old man walked past and yelled at the bunch of us and said, if you want a photo of the Wanaka tree, there are millions online. Just enjoy <laughs> the bloody thing. And he, he walked on his yeah. way. And it, yeah. it really it really stuck out to me that, you know, that it, I, I could see a photo of the Wanaka tree anytime I wanted anywhere in the world. There are millions of them on, online. Mm. But this was the one day that I was going to be there in the presence of this tree. And yet I felt I needed to get my stake in the thing, my thing to say, I was here, I did this. How, how is it that, do you think that we've come to, to relate to the sacredness of nature in this very possessive way? Uh, well, I think just by distancing ourselves from it. Um, and that has been, that's part, in a way that's quite different from other, other societies. Other societies, I'm told by people who know, know about them, they still have that sacred view of nature, but they, they, but they obviously they're adopting Western science. Um, but we, we've lost that, that sense of sitting and revering nature. And so, um, and it, it, we've just used it as a resource. And you see uh, with Newton, for example, who reduces the whole idea of God to a, a, a sort of larger version of himself. Mm, yeah. uh, God, he says, it was clearly very well versed in mathematics and geometry, just like Newton. Mm. Um, and Descartes, who uh, said, soon we shall have no 
need to wonder at anything. He wanted to rip, rip, to get rid of awe and wonder that we felt in front of nature and said, we, we, soon we won't have to do that anymore. Mm. Uh, we'll just see it as, as, as a resource and as something that we are going to control. And for him, God was right up there in the heavens. He created the world. He set it go, set it up in motion, rather as, as you would set up a machine. And then the whole thing worked automatically, he said. Mm. Uh, and uh, there was, there was it, 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 uh, the, the things of nature, he said, were no more precious than the new machines that were coming into to mm. being at that time, fountains and uh, that, that, that kind of, of, of thing, uh, that uh, not things to wonder at, but things simply to use. And that's what we have picked up. Um, mm. we, but still, I don't think all is lost because with all that, we still love going into the country. Mm. And, you know, when we have a holiday, we go to the seaside or to a place of beauty. And we may spend our time taking photographs of it instead of just being in its presence. But that love of nature still, mm. still uh, is with us. And right here in the middle of London, um, you know, we still cherish, I've got a little garden there, which we all cherish our gardens. So there's that germ of connection with nature is still with us. It's, we've not lost it entirely. And what we need to do is cultivate it, uh, just as we, you know, cultivate other habits of mind and, uh, or, or go on a diet and, uh, or, or, or have different ways of, of, of praying. Uh, this is what we should we should try to introduce practices in our lives that make us look at nature mm. differently uh, and recover mm. that. Well, Karen, I'm really um, one of the things that's been occupying me since I read that part of your book is I wonder whether that they were driven in the West, whether whether it was the fact that there were so many epidemics and and people, you know, life was really tough in those days. Whether whether that actually contributed to sort of more like an escapist form, like heaven became really, really attractive because life was just so tough in Europe, in Western Europe in those days. I'm just trying to think of um, there's there's obviously the thought um, processes that are going on, but I'm wondering whether there was also sort of a a cultural um, dynamic that was driving people to look for heavenly bliss rather than earthly bliss. Uh, you mean before the, um, the, 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 the scientific revolution? Is mm, that yeah, well, or, 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 or co coincident with it. Like, so like Newton was hiding in the countryside from, from the plague. And so I'm just wondering yes. whether, I'm just wondering whether that was part of what was driving the thinking that, that life was so tough in the in I, Western I Europe. Cannot, mm. I cannot believe that life was tougher in Western Europe than it was, say, in Africa. Or, yeah, know, sure. or, yeah that's, that's right. I mean, I was, that's what I've been trying to get my thought processes around. Yes. And, and, and diseases mm. were rife everywhere in, mm. in, in the world. That, and that, that's, that's one of the things. Um, but I think, I think the idea of that got caught on was the idea of controlling nature. Uh -huh. uh, you know, that, that we would make it uh, subject to us. And, and that's what we've done. I mean, we, we have sub subordinated nature to our own 
desires and needs. And, and there's a sense of what Newton said, what we should be, his God was, he called it dominatio, a sort mm -hmm. of a dominating force. And that's what we were becoming because domination is what we would, we would do, British would do in our empires around the world. Mm, indeed, uh, short, yes. Shortly about to do, to dominate everybody else. Mm. Um, and uh, so I think it was, it's, it's, it's less, I think that was the idea that sort of caught on in people's mind. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of what we, what one of the, one of the headings that I've got in, in my book of chap chapters is kenosis, mm -hmm. which is emptying of self. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, what all the religions actually teach us. Yoga is a way, not a, of a way as people seem to think of uh, just getting sort of physically toned up. Um, it was a way of emptying yourself. Before you uh, could even, when, when in the Buddha's day, when people went out into the forest to learn about yoga, uh, they had a, a they, they weren't allowed even to sit in the yogic position until they had mastered a whole habit of mind of, and thought. And the top of those was ahimsa, non-violence. Mm -hmm. You couldn't even swat an insect or speak an impatient word. Mm -hmm. And until your guru had decided that that was second nature, this would take about months, mm -hmm. uh, you could not even begin to sit in, in yoga. It's it, it, and, I, and I, so I think that's that sense of emptying yourself, uh, not just a, a, a sort of displaying ourselves as we, we are so constantly encouraged to do now these days. And that's good. I mean, um, you know, as a young nun, we were constantly being told to be tremendously humble and kissing the floor at every opportunity and confessing our sins. And it just drove us into ourselves even more. We became more obsessed with our progress and, uh, and our state of mind, but just leaving the self behind. And that's what the, the, the world, I mean, that's what, how Christianity began, as I, as I, as I show. Uh, the, the, the earliest sayings, the earliest writers were talking about you know, get it, get, getting rid of yourself and reaching the other. That's what the golden rule is about. Mm -hmm. Never treat others as you would not look like to be treated yourself. Look into your own heart, discover what gives you pain, and then refuse under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that applies not just uh, now for uh, mm -hmm. other people, but for the things of nature too. It's a sort of process of just putting the self quietly to one side mm -hmm. um, and not seeing ourselves as uh, domin dominators or, or seeing ourselves as the centre of the universe. We're a tiny little speck. Mm. I think you said somewhere, Cohen, um, in that same chapter, you talk about endlessly being endlessly respectful of others. And that's such a, a discipline. There's a, such a sense of returning in that. And those others, as you say, not just being other people, but also being other living things and the earth itself. And if you find yourself in a day being endlessly respectful, you know, it, it has to be a returning practice moment by moment to do that. And, you know, you have to think what a different world we would live in and how different the world itself could be if we were being endlessly respectful of it instead of uh, having a posture of domination or possession, being, you know, practicing that. It is a very moment by moment thing, isn't it? It is. And I think, 
uh, it's no good saying, well, now I'm going to be that kind of person from this day onwards, because <laughs> we are sort of programmed, aren't we, to sort of uh, advertise ourselves. But to, we can, we, you have, to, just as you have to learn how to, to cook or, or uh, you, you start with simple things, I think just inculcating a few things in our lives, like just, say, standing up for other people on the bus, for example, or not pushing yourself forward to the front of the queue, that kind of thing. Putting, just putting yourself gently to one side and reminding yourself of, of that. And, and thinking of uh, the, the way the Janes walk. Now, the Janes, I don't think any of us can be, really be Janes because some of them are so uh, uh, careful that they, they starve themselves to death and mm, never move. Mm, um, mm. And this is going to an extreme. Uh, but the whole Jane idea of just noticing other creatures. Um, and so just not just swatting that fly, for example, that's buzzing around. And and, uh, and I think I quote that bit from Tristram Shandy, the 18th century novel, where Uncle Toby, uh, the one of the, the heroes of, of the book, an 18th century, not one of the very first novels in the English language, um, takes a fly out at dinner and talks to it gently. Little fly, I'm not going to hurt you. Um, you. You have as much right to live as I do. And kindly pushing it out of the window. And just do it, you know, just if you, as a fly, if a fly is buzzing around, just, oh, just don't swat it. Uh, and that starts building up a practice um, that you, and, and it can extend to others. Start small, but uh, try and increase it, you know, every day, mm. um, because life is urgent. But just to notice uh, the creatures of this world um, and learn to to revere them, that they too have have being. I remember in being in a, in a, a sort of very nice place in in the United States, where I used to go every year. Uh, they'd, they'd have wonderful lectures and in a beautiful country place of sitting on the veranda with a, a crowd of people were having drinks and um, a wasp fell into one of my one of the, the, my neighbor's glass of wine and we all looked at this thing flying around and Buddhist uh, monk with us he said I'll, I'll take care of this went out, took the thing back, came back with a fresh glass of wine, and she said, and the wasp is fine. The wasp is <laughs> so mm. um, But just starting small like that, um, thinking that, that <clears throat> this annoying wasp or this buzzing fly has as much right to live as you do. Mm. Um, and it starts building up a sensitivity to, to the things around us. And I thought something that you sort of explored really uh, was quite striking to me when I read about it was when you you um, you wrote about animal sacrifice and how probably most people in our culture would look back on animal sacrifice and go that was barbaric that people would would sacrifice an animal you know to the gods or anything like that. But then you say uh, you write that our ancestors would be equally, if not more, horrified by the casual butchering of millions of beasts in our abattoirs every day. And it occurred to me as you went into the depth of the the way in which an animal being sacrificed that may end up being food, how much it was revered, how well it was treated, how much dignity it was given, 
um, before that decision was ultimately made compared to the production line of, of murder that we have sort of, I suppose, of, of animals today. Can you talk maybe a little bit about um, how uh, animal sacrifice sort of was, uh, was perhaps even a healthier way or a much healthier way to, uh, to approach the, the consumption of meat? Well, yes. I mean, you, the, the, the idea was that in all these cultures, you did not eat uh, red meat. Uh, I think they probably killed chickens and things, or the odd rabbit, I suppose. Uh, but that you didn't kill, you didn't eat red meat unless it had been honoured and sacrificed uh, in a way that took that took the beast, made the beast holy, and uh, brought it, uh, took it to the gods. Uh, we we only have fragmentary um, uh, accounts of this, but in Greece, I know. Uh, that when they when they uh, sacrificed uh, an animal, cut its throat, uh, they would then throw the knife into the sea and kill it uh, for what it had done because of what it had done to the animal, hmm. uh, and uh, re- recognizing <clears throat> and similarly. But in India, it was sacrifice. Uh, we think of it as killing something, we uh, destroying something. That we we immediately think of. Uh, people being sacrificed and killed in ceremonially. But the word comes from the Latin sacrum facere, which means to make holy. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the sacrifice was to make the, both the animal and the person who was uh, financing the sacrifice holy. Mm-hmm. And uh, for months, the patron of the sacrifice in ancient India, who was wanted to uh, have one of these sacrifices in the temple, he would live for months with his wife in a very small hut. And because he was making a spiritual journey to heaven, he had to become like a god. That meant he had to be born again as a god. And he would have to move as though he were a fetus in the womb um, and gradually learn to walk and think as though he were a god. It took months, could take months for this this to continue. Mm. Um, And then uh, in India, uh, by the ninth century BCE, they had decided that it was really best if you didn't kill the animal at the end of this, but you made it holy, but then gave it to one of the priests to live out its life in a happy way. But if you continued, you, you could, the patron could continue, this animal was put to death with such gentleness and was honoured because it it too was holy. Mm. It was sacred mm. um, and honoured and uh, cut, uh, the throat was cut very, very gently and very quickly. Mm. And uh, not in the sort of, as I say, haphazard, heartless way with which we slaughter our animals today. They would have been absolutely horrified by this. Mm. Um, and the, the idea was to make the, the, both the animal and the person holy, sacrum facere, uh, not just getting uh, having a good meal. Um, and so, uh, the, and there are ways in which, and only a few people could go to these sacrifices at all, of course, because they were the big uh, ceremonial sacrifices and the big temples were really only for the elite. But in India, they developed practices that could make could be used by everybody however humble their existence uh, to make things holy 
Um, so you were told, they were told, for example, each day to put out some food or water for animals uh, or animal or beasts or animals uh, to greet everybody who came into your home, whether you liked him or not, uh, with absolute respect. Uh, joining your hands and bowing, feeding him, giving him everything he could, making that person, treating that person as holy and making him holy in the process. And then sitting, they called it a spiritual study of scripture, but this just didn't mean sort of Bible study or anything. It meant that you simply sat for a while with your eyes on the horizon and recited a prayer or a poem, uh, a song, to yourself, uh, making uh, making yourself and being in touch with nature, make, making it holy. Mm. Just and I think it's we could all inculcate simple ways like that mm. um, of, of, of seeing that everything we come into contact with, every person we come into contact with, however annoying um, they may be, uh, is. Uh, holy mm. in some uh not 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 surrounded by cherubim and seraphim in a halo but something utterly precious mm. um and that that practice in india which they still do of bowing it's it's a the, mm. our body teaches us things so much mm. that we don't realize and neurologists tell us we get a huge amount of information uh from our bodies our bodily actions and they understood that very much in, mm. in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, mm. I found that really helpful, the, the number of times you referred to practice as a way of teaching ourselves how to behave. I thought that was uh, really insightful um, and even goes back to your, your, your images before of um, people using their mobile phones, that, that is a habituated practice that um, I've even noticed myself um, going for my mobile phone when nothing's happening. And I've actually started almost giving myself a slap on the wrist to say, well, actually, you don't really need to look at that now. Um, be present. So you know, we do embody practice and practice does actually shape us. So I, I found that really a helpful theme throughout the whole book about the way practice actually as you say, can teach us, our bodies can teach us how to view the world and encounter the world. So, yeah. That's so well in the ancient world. Mm. Um, and we, we've very much often made religion a kind of head trip. Yeah. Um, yes, very much so. <clears throat> and, and I wish we had more, like thinking about bowing and formal greetings. We don't have many formal greetings. You know, and, we, and with COVID, we've even stopped shaking hands. Mm. We're struck today with with have, with greeting people and sometimes you know you're greeting people at your very uncomfortable greeting and you want to be able to extend hospitality but if all you've got your is your face it's for me it's a challenge a nice bow would actually be very helpful mm. you know to say yes i'm going to override whatever i'm feeling right now and show you respect but i think that we can probably introduce some if we're imaginative enough about it we can introduce some ways of honoring people when they yeah. come into the Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. it's absolutely creative to your particular house or, um, uh, you know, let them sit in the best chair, for example, or yeah. immediately get them something nice to eat and drink yes. um, and uh, show 
utter delight instead of looking at them as, you know, why have you here kind of thing. What, yeah. what mm. um, even if they're annoying people who come to the door mm. sometime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, instead of just being impatient, you, you perceive you've been interrupted. And I had to go down three flights of stairs to get to the front door. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes it's just uh, to try and treat that person with honor and, and, and respect and friendship. Yeah. Uh, and, and even getting up, standing up for somebody, somebody uh, at, in, on the bus, for example, instead mm. of just grabbing a seat, uh, uh, just finding little ways to do it. And that builds up habitual um just we, we, it's no good saying we're now going to treat everybody with respect from this day forward uh, we have to do it step by step until it becomes habitual mm. and it, it occurs to me um sue when you mentioned even the handshake there that the greeting we do have has been largely turned into um a, a sort of a greeting you know in the business world especially of dominating the other how firm is your handshake and you know it's mm. not it's not honoring the um the sacredness of the other but it's almost a chance to assert your own strength mm. and, um, you know, that was a very, I remember as a, as a boy growing up, it was a thing we were often told is how, how firm is your handshake? That is how people yeah. make a, a first impression of you. And, and it's, we're, we're constantly in the West playing this game of dominating, um, over and above everything. And, uh, maybe when you think about it that way, it's no wonder we're in a loneliness epidemic, is it? Mm. Oh, and of course it's, it's right. Because I, mean, I think we just have to be patient with ourselves and realize that we've, we've got ourselves into a sort of dominatrix kind of mind. And just find little ways day by day of inculcating a little memory of of how little we know, um, how little we do for other people. Uh, Just just remind ourselves of that last thing at night. Mm. Um, What have I done today that's been good to anybody? Or, and, and what are the days, how many times have I just been impatient or slighted people, just not to, to create a great beating of breast and, oh, what an evil person I am, because that's just more ego. Mm. Just just a gentle reminder that, you know, there, tomorrow you'll do better, as it were. Um, and I, I, I think this, this, is, this is what we need right now, at, to treat us other, our fellow human beings like that, and also uh, the natural world as well. As well. Um, I suppose, um, Karen, this ties into the idea you explore, particularly from uh, the Chinese culture about concentric circles, this idea of expanding yes. your, I guess, your horizon of care and concern gra- constantly and gradually further and further out. Could you just speak a little bit about that, perhaps? Yes, I, I, I have come to love the, uh, the, the, the spirituality of China. I must say, the, the, the Confucian method, the, uh, the Taoist method, and they, they figure largely in the book. Mm. And Neo-Confucians particularly, um, in, in the 10th century um, BCE, um, they, they started to, uh, this, this, this habit of uh, thinking outward um, in, in a series of circles that you started off in China by revering everybody in your family. That's when you were brought up uh, in the family. Each person in the family had to be treated with absolute respect. And each person in the family had somebody to look after in that family. The older son would have to look after uh, his his parents, for example. The younger son would have to look after the older son. And so it went on. So everybody had to somebody to, to give 
habits of courtesy, uh, control, waiting upon people, getting in that habit. But he couldn't stop with the family. You then had to move out to the next circle, to everybody in your neighborhood, and start treating them with respect. Then uh, you go further out uh, until you, you, it's everybody in your country. And then finally, and you do this in exercises of expanding your mind out to the whole world. And I think now that our world is so much more shrunk uh, than, uh, than, it is, uh, than it was in ancient China, uh, we, 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 it's, it's easier for us to do that. And now we have to add an extra circle, not just other human beings, but nature as mm. well, as part of our concern. And this idea of mind expansion is also very present in Buddhism. We often see the Buddha, don't we, in, in, in pictures, sort of looking inward, as it were, um, uh, sitting cross-legged, uh, looking deeply within. And we imagine it's a, his, he achieved enlightenment by going deep, deep down into the self and uh, mastering it. And, uh, but no, that's the texts tell us that he did quite the opposite. He sat and expanded his mind. Uh, every day, uh, moving it out to in, in, in a series, rather like the concentric circles, of moving out so that first you um, honoured everybody in your environment, mm. however, whether you liked them or not. Mm. Then you moved out to your country again and, and not leave the until every single creature, even a, a wasp, for example, was, was treated with care and respect until finally you, you reached out. And at that time, you'd left the self behind. You'd left the ego behind. Uh, and, and, mm. and that was how he achieved enlightenment. And there's a, I, I give a, there's a story where, and I, I finish up uh, with, uh, there's a, a prayer. It's, that is in the Buddhist canon, which really expresses that. Um, and, I can, and, and it's something that we could all master and mention every day. It starts, let all beings be happy. All beings notice, not just all people. Uh, small or great, alive or still to be born. May they all be perfectly happy. Mm. May our loving thoughts fill the entire world above, below, behind. And, and greeting everybody free of hatred and enmity. Mm. And that, that prayer, it's quite short. Um, and it's interesting that it's not addressed to a God or anything. It's just a general goodwill to mm. all beings. Mm. Uh, if we could just recite that to us, to ourselves, uh, you know, when, when we're walking the dog or, um, sitting on the bus or going to work every day. It's a mind exercise that we, we leave ourselves behind and, and reach out to the world. The Chinese and the Indians both saw, saw it in this way. Um, and um, the Neo-Confucians said that every single creature, every single thing has a principle that has to be a, a principle of life that has to be investigated and respected. Um, and that it was the golden rule again. 
Um, and these people, the Neo-Confucians, weren't uh, sort of hermits uh, sitting in sort of uh, Buddha-like in um, contemplation. They were, because Confucians were all in central government, they were all officials, like civil servants, we call them here. Uh, with, and, they had, and there are wonderful descriptions of them about how, how their demeanor was always one of utter respect, calm, gentleness, and thoughtfulness to all. And, and I sort of delineate some of those practices there. And that's the kind of attitude that, that we have now. We're very inimical to one another, aren't we? We, we like getting, um, putting other people in their place and uh, jokes and... Um, and self-assertion, we're told, and it's right that we should, we, I, we don't want to be like Uriah Heep uh, mm -hmm. in Dickens' character, who's mm -hmm. endlessly going around saying how humble he is, and yeah. how mm -hmm. nothing, that's, an, that's another form of ego. Mm -hmm. uh, but just uh, putting, your, just put, re retreating each person you are, you encounter with absolute respect. Mm -hmm. And they, they have, they had uh, uh, the Western inscription, which I, quote a little bit from it at the beginning of the book, um, let, uh, which again suggested that every single thing was valuable and had to be respected. It's called the Western inscription because this, this Confucian put it on the Western wall of his study, uh, inscribed it and put it on the, on, on the Western wall of his study. And he felt so strongly that he couldn't, did not want to cut the grass that grew underneath his window because he says the feeling the grass has its life too the same as i do yeah, yeah. um uh and um they, and another one said that when he heard the cry of a donkey he felt the cry of all humanity there in it do you know yeah. it was interesting when you wrote that bit car and I, I was taken back to a school camp in in year 10 and uh, we were out doing a, a sort of an overnight trip this is a month away that we did it at my particular school and as part of that we go we went out in tents for a few nights and we could hear um the cry in the middle of the night of a, a cow that had lost its calf is what the instructor told us and, and anyone who's heard that sound knows just how uh, agonizing a, a cry Ooh. it is and the the instructor who was at the camp with us seemed entirely I, I can remember it really troubled me he seemed entirely unfazed by it uh, he's clearly heard it many times before and um, you know this is this is just something that happens in the wild and I was there I thought I was clearly far too sensitive as a year 10 boy because it was it was breaking my heart I could barely uh I could barely go to sleep that night listening to the agony of of, of this cow and I guess it's um it it stuck out to me when when you went on to talk about um the 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 I think it's Mencius the Chinese philosopher who followed Confucius and his idea of expanding the golden rule to apply to nature as well um and I thought it'd be great to hear you talk a little bit about that if if that's okay yes no certainly uh, Confucius is the first person in the world uh, as far as we know to uh, institute the idea of the golden rule as central to life. Uh, do not impose on others, he said, what you yourself do not desire. And that, uh, and that meant that you, you treated everybody with whom you came into being with absolute respect, whether you were with, with high officials or, he said, with the min, uh, the, the, ordin the common people, the ordinary people, walk among them as if you were officiating as a great sacrifice with reverence. 
and you do this with the body uh, very much so bodily gestures because we learn through our bodies but uh, Mencius uh, as you say said now we but we can't stop with human beings we must go what he called to the one world uh, the things of nature now I it's very difficult translating this uh, because the word thing for us has become a very sort of neutral dead thing isn't it you know this is this this is a thing um, uh, they're sort of lifeless and uh, we treat that but but for the Chinese one Wu, the things of nature each one was holy um, and the idea this so that you had he said uh, we learn uh, from our from looking at nature, said Mencius, the way that, that, that everything in nature yields to one another, that uh, that you know that, that everything is harmonious, and they all fit in with one another, uh, and in, in their in, in, and have to act in their own way, uh, but with but have their, their their own distinct life, and he said that is is what we must honour all of them. We call them things, but they are sacred things. Uh, and each one must be treated with absolute respect, just as we treat other people, bow towards other people, as, as, they, as they do in India. Uh, we must approach each thing of nature in the same reverent way. And we do that uh, by day by day. Uh, it's not. It's, it's it's a habit that we must build, a mental habit that we must build up in our minds. Yes, that 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 notion of the the different way in which they think that we they, the Chinese regarded each thing one will as, as something absolutely sacred, whereas we regard a thing as something that we can simply throw away. Mm -hmm. um, mm. or, or, or and do you think? Karen, I'm really. I've heard you speak a number of times about you know the the um, how objectivity, and you relate that to to logos and mythos in the book too, and mm. how we tend to think of God as the objective other instead of. And I think as you're talking now about things, I think when we see it as a thing, we are also seeing it as a separate objective. Um, point in our lives instead of a relation seeing ourselves in relationship to all of these things and that um that relationship actually being a subjective you know the, the subjective truth of our relationship both to other people and to nature to the air we breathe and you know that that how do you i'd be interested to hear how you see um that uh very western concentration of an understanding of objectivity and objective fact and objective reason um causing us to become so divorced from um, our sense of connection with nature and with one another? Well, I think you put it very well. Um, this it, We have deliberately, uh, since the 18th century, 17th century, developed this sense of objectivity. Mm. And that has enabled us to, to progress so much in science mm. and industry and has done all these things. And, you know, and wonderful things have happened. Medicine, for example. Uh, has, has has improved lives. I mean, I have an epileptic condition, uh, and my life is uh, much much better than it would have been in in ancient times uh, because of modern medicine. Uh, 
uh, which and we have and so we must. It's not that we must endlessly say how evil we are, but just that our, we are limited in in some way. We've limited the the, the uh, our area of concern, um, and that uh, that you that we now have to sort of try because it's now urgent. It's not just a nice idea now. I mean, the climate is getting worse every day. Mm. Um, uh, every, you know, the, we've already gone past the, 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 safe, the safe bit. We're seeing every day uh, the disasters happening around, around the world. Mm. Um, and um, this is something that, so there is an urgency in, 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 in doing this to try and change our mindsets. Mm. Uh, that uh, it's that, and, and it, 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 we can't do it. You know, it's not that we're going to be able to do it from this day forward. Every day, we have to in, inculcate small things day by day into our daily into our daily practice. Um, and so, things like sitting quietly, quiet sitting, as they call it, where you just take in the sounds of nature, say for ten minutes a day, then up to fifteen. And this kind of becomes habitual. And the way we encounter other people as well as other things too. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's this, uh, the golden rule applies to everybody and everything. You go on to talk a bit about the Neo-Confucian idea of forming a new trinity um, between earth, heaven and humanity. Mm. And I just thought that was that sort of flowed on a little bit from that golden rule idea. And I'd love to, um, I'd love to, to for you to share a bit about that because I think the idea of a trinity between Earth, Heaven, and humanity that involves us—we've got a role to play, not this trinity that sits externally to us in a sense, but a trinity that um that we've we're we're part of and we've got a, a role to play in it. I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it. It is, and and that idea of the trinity it, that is deep in 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 the Chinese tradition. Um, so much so that even today people say that that is that is absolutely crucial to to the Chinese thought. And there's a big Confucian movement going on in China at the moment, uh, which I, is, is I've been studying quite quite a lot. Where they they ha- I'm not sure they've gone on to nature yet. They're mostly talking about government and how government should be the, the Confucians. But I think uh, that, 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 that they should be reaching out to nature. A trinity between heaven, earth, and humanity—that uh, uh, that they form a tri- a sacred triad, uh, where each thing depends upon one another. Not not one is superior to another. Mm. Uh, are are in deeply deeply interconnected and depend upon one another, and uh, that that this was inculcated in small attitudes. Uh, you, you learn to do this often through the body mm-hmm. by the way we greet other people, the way we treat other things, as we've seen about the fly, for example, uh, just uh, and recognizing that each thing is holy. Uh, each, each thing is, and, and, and that there is that God is not somebody stuck up in the mm. highest heavens. Uh, it's quite interesting that when the Jesuits arrived in China in the 17th century, 
they brought the new science from the West, you know, Copernicus, Galileo, which had caused great con controversy in, in, uh, here in Europe. But the Chinese took all that in their stride. They found it fascinating, uh, you know, but they said, as one of them said, dear me, oh dear me, when they talk about the qi, uh, uh, the, the ultimate reality, the, mm. the, the force that keeps the universe, they don't know what they're being. They talk, they talk about a god confined to a tiny part of the universe that he supposedly created. Uh, they found it utterly bewildering. And even before that, in the 12th century, uh, when uh, the Europeans were making a terrible journey to the Holy Land, uh, they, they, the Crusaders had, had, were going out there and pilgrims were also coming. And it was a dreadful journey. I mean, they often died en route. You can imagine how it would have been walking on foot uh, from China to the Middle East and to Jerusalem. But the local Christians would look at these people when they arrived in Jerusalem, they'd fall on the ground and kiss it and weep and weep to be on this holy soil. And they said, what are the, the local Christians, what are they doing? Don't they understand all land is holy? Mm. Well, they don't have to go all that way to find a holy land. Their mm. land is holy too. What are they talking about? Yeah. These were uh, Greek Orthodox. Now, the Greeks had uh, the Greek yeah. Orthodox Christians yeah. have a much better uh, understanding of nature than we in the West, yes. because mm. they had a long tradition of um, nature worship mm. in, uh, in 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 the pagan world. Artemis was one of the great goddesses, and she was present everywhere in the world, but every in every single thing, but invisible. Yeah. And her great temple in uh, Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Mm. So that was very much in, that was very much part of the Greek psyche, uh, which mm. they they are much better at it than we are in the West. Um, yeah. And so that 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 idea that all that all land is holy uh, was absolutely second nature to them. Um, and similarly, the Chinese who said that, you know, really, uh, these, these Westerners, they're very clever, but they don't seem to understand the qi, this, this, this mm -hmm. trinity, uh, this ubiquity of the divine. Um, and I think that's something that we need to try, try to find uh, in small ways that just make that sense, that image invisible. Get rid of this idea of a distant God gazing down at us from above uh, and see, as Thomas Aquinas understood it, God is everywhere um, and, and it is wholly present in everything in the world. Um, not just uh, 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 these things are not just distant shadows of God. The divine is present as as. Uh, in a grain of sand, as Blake, as William Blake had it, to see the world in a in a in a blade of grass, the smallest thing, and if we can just try and inculcate that, poetry helps us, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you know, we've got we have fine nature poets. Um, I quoted Wordsworth earlier, um, and also uh, you you'll see I en ended the book with the Ancient Mariner. Mm. Where um, the, the 
with that extraordinary poem, you probably all learnt it at school as, as oh, we yes. did. I never quite got it really at, at school. I thought it all seemed a bit far-fetched and gloomy. But it has things to teach us today uh, because um, uh, the, this, uh, this sailor just shoots a bird, an albatross, out sheer, he doesn't say why he did it, he just says, with my crossbow, I shot the albatross. Mm. Just as we carelessly, day by day, do all kinds of things that damage the universe. Mm. Little things, we don't even remember them the next day. Mm. Um, but to become aware of that and the terrible things that occur, mm. uh, to, the whole of nature is, it goes, it goes against, it is broken. And the mariner, all his companions die and uh, he looks at the sea and he calls and sees the fish in them as slimy things and disgusting. But one night he looks up at heaven, into the heavens, and he sees the moon. And he suddenly identifies imaginatively with the moon and sees it as a wanderer like himself, uh, yearning for home, just as he is as, a, as an endless sailor on the sea. And that moment of connection with nature, when he goes back and sees the fish, he see oh he sees them as utterly beautiful, uh, and that and the and, and that is that breaks the curse, mm. and somehow we've got to move like the mariner from a sense of sheer indifference to nature, treating it badly and uh, and and uh, not in not thinking what we're doing and not taking any notice of it to recognizing the, the, the sacrality that is all around us. Yeah, yeah. And and I suppose just as we move to the end of the, this conversation now, something that I thought as, as I was reading the book was um, we will, you know, the, the way to do this, to reconnect in this whole new way requires an enormous amount of humility and um and kenosis i suppose to to listen to the the traditions that are not our own that have so much to teach us such as the you know this neo confucian idea of a new trinity such as the idea of ahimsa that you spoke about earlier the the absolute dedication to no harm um and i know obviously uh and this is very prevalent here in australia but the indigenous cultures of the world and what they can teach us about revering nature revering land um in a way that we seem to have missed but i really love that you also you do touch that these threads do come through the the western christian tradition as well where you um i mean and i know that i often speak on this podcast about the genesis twenty eight sixteen moment of jacob saying surely the lord is in this place and i did not know it or um i've heard rob bell speak about moses and the burning bush and how moses would have walked past that bush thousands of times and only now does he take his sandals off and realize it is holy ground um, but you also explore, and I thought this might be a, a nice way to end, in terms of a, a, the concentric circles idea, you explore the story of Job as a, as a prophet, in a sense, to us um, of, of how Job is inward looking in his own suffering after all the, the wrong that, that has happened in his life. He's inward looking and the way that the, the divine answers that question, responds to that suffering ultimately is essentially reconnecting Job with the, the world around him, expanding his circles in a sense. Yes, it, it, and Job is not a, sort of a, an official prophet, of course. Um, he, he, this is a story that is being told, but he's a prophet for our time, I think, because uh, God, God, of course, has a, 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 done a sort of bet with uh, Satan. Satan has said, look, I, I can get this man... Uh, you know he's, he's he's too good uh, uh let's show him what what he is and he poor job is inflicted with hideous 
problems and uh, his family are all killed and uh, he develops a horrible disease and, uh, and, he's, and he laments himself. And this endless, beautiful, po extraordinary poetry, but this endless sorrow and anger and a rage, all self-centered. And then finally, God answers and he says, who on earth do you think you are? Uh, and he says, look, at, look, look, for example, at the horse, the, this absolute magnificent creature. Uh, uh, how can you possibly measure yourself against that? Look at the donkey uh, who up in the, in the wild, if, if he's escaped from human control and is now absolutely joyous and free. Look at the way uh, animals don't hang on to their children like we do in a self-indulgent way. They let them go wild and free. How do you dare to put yourself on the same level as these creatures? And Job is forced to come out of his own introversion and see the absolute marvels of, 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 of animals and, and, and nature around him. And he puts his hand on his uh, over his mouth which was it was a, a literal sign of saying i'm sorry um i and, and a moment of kenosis where he realizes how small he is um and and i think that's what we need to do is when we look around the natural world and look at the, the way the smallest creature has its own distinct life Break, and every tree that goes on um, growing year after year and, and ha each has its own sacred, extraordinary life. Uh, and that is going ar on around us all the time in every animal, in every plant, in every tree, in, in all the seasons. Uh, and it should make us realize how small we are really and put our own hand in front of our mouths and say, I'm sorry. I I, I realize now um, how how limited our human uh, being can be. I think Job, as I say, is a prophet for our time. Uh, instead of endlessly worrying about ourselves and how we create recreate ourselves and make ourselves to look just look at the world around us and its marvels and honor it, and it makes us realize how small we really are. It's such a fascinating take on Job. I've not heard it before. And the thing that, that I thought as I was reading your, your exploration of that too was this is actually then the thing that heals Job in a sense is that his healing only comes when he look, when his, his circles expand outwards and he realises how small he is. That is the moment of the healing. That's the moment of the healing. And it's what, what they call kenosis, getting rid of yourself. Yeah. Getting just getting outside the self and our self preoccupation and our yeah. endless introversion and our self pity that we all have these moments of ghastly self pity and uh, just look at the at what mm. is around you in the world where were you says God when I created the world um, you don't know anything mm. uh, and just realize how small we are uh, I think that's a that's I know we're always taught these days to be confident in ourselves, and that's important too. But just realize the wonders that are around mm. us every day that we don't even notice. And it makes and makes us see ourselves. Mm. Uh, just put your hand in front of your mouth and say, no, I, I understand. Mm.
Well, that was a really helpful way of looking at kenosis, um, that it's about ecstasy almost, going beyond yourself. Um, Because in the podcast, we've explored often how uh, kenosis can be quite a toxic effect on people um, about self-denial and sort of self-deprecation, whereas what you did was actually see it as a spiritual movement out. Yes. that you You leave yourself behind because you've gone out further rather than getting to the point where there's nothing left as if you're denying yourself to the point of destruction. So that was a really wonderful way of turning something that has become quite toxified in the West into a liberation and a great joy. Um, and uh, there was a movement I noticed quite often in the book that um, was really quite helpful. It's what I experienced myself because as a, when, as a young nun, we were endlessly looking inwards at ourselves and mm. our thoughts and how our meditations were going. We had to make a meditation in the morning and then during breakfast, we had to ask ourselves eight questions as to how that meditation had gone. Endlessly stuck within yeah. yourself. Yeah. Instead, uh, as God says, look outward. Yeah. Look at the world around us, which is full of marvels. Then you lose yourself. That's the mm. whole point. Kenosis is getting beyond the self, mm. not saying how awful I am, uh, what a terrible, uh, sinful person I am, which is just embedding yourself in ego. Yeah. Uh, you don't matter so much. Uh, just look out uh, and learn to see that the whole world is full of marvels of wonder. Even here, right in the centre of London, I can see these trees and I see the birds and I see the squirrels running up and down my road and, uh, light, and, and the birds in the garden. Even there, nature is calling me to look outward um, and uh and honour that beauty and that that is keeping us alive. Mm. Uh, of course, people saw God in nature. We see God as what keeps us alive and going, but it's nature that keeps us alive and going, uh, not just our own cleverness. Um, and uh, so, and we should be honouring that uh, desperately, as 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 especially as the, the the darkness falls with with everything we've done. Uh, but to tr- instead of despairing, uh, to try and honour nature and, and look out and, uh, like Job, see how small we are and how wondrously lucky we are to live in this extraordinary world. Mm. Yeah, and it, I guess it strikes me, Karen, that this is the most timely um, thing we can we could possibly have right now because uh, we've got abundant evidence that the way we have related to nature for a few hundred years now just does not work. Nature's not okay with it. Um, our souls are telling us that they're not okay with it either. And on every front, everyone is demanding change and and um, you know some sort of, of repaired, um, healed relationship uh, to how things, I suppose, used to be in in the in the traditions. So. Look, it's, it's such a brilliant book. It is sacred nature, how we can recover our bond with the natural world. There are so many amazing gems in it, Karen. Thank you so much for writing it, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much.